in compliance with the host pastor's request, I'm going to attempt to bring a paper on the subject, the Armenian Controversy, focusing primarily on the years A.D. 1604 through 1619, and then bringing this into the Wesleyan or Evangelical Arminianism that developed out of the Wesleyan movement. I am at a great disadvantage, first of all, in that we have already heard a tremendously stirring message from Brother Gene Breed. Secondly, you have each overly indulged in the rich food that was provided, and a full stomach is conducive to a non-thinking brain. <laughs> By calling, I'm a preacher and not a lecturer, and so I'm bound down to the notes of this lecture in order to convey the contents of the study in a reasonable period of time. And then further, the disadvantage of the required amount of time to treat a subject of this nature. The Armenian controversy, so says Philip Schaft, in his Creeds of Christendom, volume 1, page 509, is the most important which took place within the Reformed Church. It corresponds to the Pelagian and the Jansenist controversies in the Catholic Church. It involves the problem of ages, and this is a key statement. It involves the problem of ages, which again and again has baffled the kin of theologians and philosophers, and will do so to the end of time. The relation of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It started with the doctrine of predestination and turned round five articles or, quote, knotty points of Calvinism. Hence the term quinquarticular controversy. Calvinism, and this is a tremendous statement coming from Philip Schaff, who is not known for being overly sympathetic with Calvinism. He says, Calvinism represented the consistent, logical, conservative orthodoxy. Arminianism, an elastic, progressive, changing liberalism. Calvinism triumphed in the Synod of Dort and excluded Arminianism. So, in the preceding generation, strict Lutheranism had triumphed over Melanchthonianism, which was the controversy of Melanchthon, the successor of Luther, who watered down Luther's predestination and introduced a form of Pelagianism into the Lutheran Church, in the formula of Concord. But in both churches, the spirit of the conquered party rose again from time to time within the ranks of orthodoxy, to exert its moderating and liberalizing influence or to open new issues in the progressive march of theological science. And so says Philip Schott. Since without Calvinism the Arminian controversy would never have arisen, and Arminius would not have come to such fame in history, 
I personally believe that it is fitting at this point to give a definition of Calvinism, although I shall sum up later the Canons of Dort, which state the Calvinistic position of God's sovereignty and salvation. But Calvinism is more than a doctrine of soteriology that is limited to salvation, which the five points are primarily concerned with. And at this point, I think it might be well to interject that it was not John Calvin who drew up the so-called five points of Calvinism, but rather these grew out of the Arminian controversy as a counter-remonstrance to the remonstrance of the Arminians against the Calvinistic position. So Calvinism must be taken as a whole and not simply in the five points that pertain to God's sovereignty and salvation. It is a whole world view or panacea. The definition which I give of Calvinism is taken from Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield's Calvin as a theologian and Calvinism today, pages 22 through 24. Warfield says, The Calvinist is the man who has seen God, and who, having seen God in his glory, is filled on the one hand with a sense of his own unworthiness to stand in God's sight as a creature, and much more as a sinner, and on the other with adoring wonder that nevertheless this God is a God who receives sinners. He who believes in God without reserve and is determined that God shall be God to him in all his thinking, feeling, willing, in the entire compass of his life activities, intellectual, moral, spiritual, throughout all his individual social religious relations, is by force of the strictest of all logic which presides over the outworking of principles into thought and life by the very necessity of the case a Calvinist. A Calvinist is the man who sees God behind all phenomena, and in all that occurs recognizes the hand of God working out his will, who makes the attitude of the soul to God in prayer its permanent attitude in all its life activities, and who casts himself on the grace of God alone, excluding every trace of dependence on self from the whole work of his salvation. A much fuller discussion and definition of the subject of Calvinism can be found in the now available book by Warfield, Calvin and Augustine, plus volume one and pages 273 following of the Encyclopedia of Christianity. It is only fair to say, in the light of the Arminian controversy over against Calvinism, that modern Arminianism on the whole is so far removed from Jacob Arminius himself that on the one side it is little more than Socinianism and Pelagianism, and on the other, in fundamental circles, a modified Wesleyanism. To a large extent it has deteriorated into a form of religious humanism with no certain doctrinal content. At least John Wesley was a scholar, having written over 80 volumes. 
Jacob Arminius was a theologian of the highest type. And as a superlapsarian Calvinist, I can afford to be kind to Arminius and to Wesley. And that I shall attempt to do while disagreeing with them thoroughly in their theological conclusions. Therefore, we further conclude that modern-day Arminianism, whereas older Arminianism was more God-centered, is totally man, emotional, experimental, entertainment-centered, rather than Bible-God-centered. In order to open this up, I will try to develop my thoughts on the subject under the following headings. Number one, a discussion of James Arminius, his life and personal controversy. Number two, the remonstrance and their five points of remonstrance. And that's spelled R-E-M-O-N-S-T-R-A-N-T-S with reference to the disciples of Arminius and R-E-M-O-N-S-T-R-A-N-C-E with reference to their articles of faith. The Synod of Dort and its articles or canons will be the third point of discussion, and I will conclude with a discussion, however brief, of Wesleyan or Evangelical Arminianism as it has become uh, the foundation of modern Arminianism without doctrinal content. Let us look first of all at James Arminius himself, his life and controversy. In the Dutch language, the name of James Arminius was one of several. Jacob Hermansen, Jacob Hermanson, Jacob Van Herman, and Jacob Zoon Herman. And finally, resolved to be Jacob or James Arminius, the Latin rendering of the former names. Concerning, first of all, his, her- his early life. Jacob Arminius, as we shall refer to him because he's more popularly known by this name rather than Hermanson or Van Hermanson, was born in the south of Holland in a small town translated into English would be Old Water in the year of 1560. Forty-nine years later he died in the year of 1609 from consumption or tuberculosis, a very painful death. And that just one year prior to the calling of the Synod of Dort, uh, which was called by the general masters of the free states of Holland to settle the issues that Jacob Arminius and his followers had, had raised. However, Arminius himself, had sought time and again for a synod of this type for the settling of the issues, but was cut off in life before he saw the realization of that desire, which was realized and later condemned it. As we look at the life of Jacob Arminius, it, although arranged by providence, would be considered from a humanistic perspective is quite tragic. He lost his father in his infancy. This made it necessary that he come under the guardianship of Theodore Emilius, who had been converted from Roman Catholicism as a priest in the Roman Church and was a very devout Christian. At the age of fifteen, however, he lost Emilius by death. Afterward, 
resulting from the death of Emilius, Rudolf Snellius became his guardian and in 1575 moved him from his hometown of Burke to Marburg, M-A-R-B-U-R-G, Marburg. However, at this time, there was tremendous conflict between the free states of Holland and Spain. Upon his arrival at Marburg, being only fifteen years of age, he received the news that the Spaniards had sacked his native town, and in this invasion his mother and all other known relatives had been massacred. Let us turn from this to examine something of his education, because it is this strange move of providence that begins to shape the educational life of Jacob Arminius. After the news of the death of his mother, he went to Rotterdam to live with Peter Bertius, who was pastor of the Reformed or Calvinistic Church there. At the age of fifteen, with Peter Bertius II, or Jr., he was enrolled at the University of Leiden, which had just been founded, and studied there for the next six years, proving himself to be a scholar of no mean reputation. In 1582, approximately at the age of 22, he was sent to Geneva, Switzerland, there to study in the great school of Reformed theology under the tutorship of Theodore Beza, who was the successor of John Calvin. Now, his moving to Geneva was as a result of the city fathers in Leiden who recognized his potential and therefore the necessity of themselves giving a full financial support and assuming responsibility for his education in Geneva. Under the teachings of Biza, Jacob Arminius became a confirmed Calvinist. In 1588, after having left Geneva and studied for a while in Italy under a world-famous philosopher and then studying elsewhere, he returned to Amsterdam, where he was ordained into the ministry, and there soon became distinguished as a preacher and theologian. A much fuller detailed account of his life can be found in McClintock and Strong, Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature, and they being heavily under Wesleyan Arminianism influence. I can assure you will give a favorable account to every detail of the life of Jacob Arminius. But this leads us now, out of his early life through his education, to the development of his own personal controversy within Reformed circles. Just how did he become opposed to the Calvinistic faith? What got him, who by nature was a non-controversial man? swept up into controversy that has carried with it his name for all these years. Again, I quote from Philip Schaff, The Creeds of Christendom, volume 1, beginning with page 510. He relates that Arminius was at first a strict Calvinist. 
But while engaged in investigation and defending the Calvinistic doctrines against the writing of Dirk, uh, Dirk Kuhnhert, who lived from 1522 to 1591, and the last name is spelled C-O-O-R-N-H-E-R-T, at the request of the magistrate of Amsterdam, he found the arguments of the opponent, who was a Pelagian, stronger than his own convictions, and became a convert to the doctrine of universal grace and of the freedom of the will. The great controversy, however, developed in a series of sermons which he preached to his own congregation from the book of Romans. Now, you're going to find there's nothing new in our own time as we examine some of these views, and one of the finest ways of learning church or, or Bible doctrine is studying church history with all of its controversies. And I highly recommend this as a method of study. He saw in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans the description of a legalistic conflict of the awakened but unregenerate man, while Augustine and the Reformers referred it to the regenerate. And here was the beginning of the controversy. He denied the decree of reprobation, his main objection being to the supralapsarian view of Visa, who had systematized more fully Calvin's teachings in that area, and modified the doctrine of original sin, though Arminius himself never gave up his belief, and I'm interjecting these thoughts because Schaff doesn't bring this out. But Arminius never did give up his belief in the total corruption of man's nature by birth. Never. He held to it to the end. He only modified original sin. That is, to the extent it held us down in cooperating with God. But he thought man was depraved throughout, as strongly as any Calvinist here present. He advocated a revision of the Belgic Confession and Heidelberg Catechism. These are the famous standards of the Reformed Church today. And Ursinus was one of the authors of the Catechism and wrote its first commentary, and I highly recommend it to your reading. He came into open conflict with his supralapsarian colleague, Francis Gomar, or Gomarus, as he is sometimes called, who lived from 1563 to 1645 who is a very important person in the history of Calvinism. Now, Francis Gomarus was the one who had conferred on Jacob Arminius his degree of Doctor of Divinity, but now became his chief antagonist. Hence, at that time, the strict Calvinists were called Gomarists. The controversy soon spread over all Holland, Arminius applied to the government to convoke a synod, appealing, like the Donatists, to the very power which afterwards condemned him, but died of a very painful disorder before it convened. Now let me interject this to, to give a little interesting sidelight on the life of Arminius that might help you place him in history. He died in the year of 1609. This was the year, the same year, the Pilgrim Fathers from Scrooby, England, 
of New England arrived in Leiden, Holland, where Arminius was professor of theology at the University of Leiden, where they lived until their departure for America in 1620. Also, Arminius was born in the same year that Melanchthon, who watered down the Lutheran doctrine of predestination, died in 1560. He was a learned and able divine, and during the controversy which embittered his life, he showed a meek Christian spirit. Condemned by others, said Grotius, a tremendous scholar, but one who favored the Arminian position, he condemned none. His views on anthropology, that is, the Bible doctrine of man, and soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, approached those of the Melanchthonian school in the Lutheran Church. Now, this is a very important statement. But the tendency of his theology, and this is Schaff speaking, but the tendency of his theology was toward a latitudinarian liberalism which developed itself in his following. And that is a key statement. Although Arminius himself would have denied it, this is what developed through his fault. As you know, Latitudinarianism later on took over the Church of England, and it was that doctrine of no doctrine. Give man as wide a latitude as possible, and let's all just find a common ground of fellowship for universalism. And this is what Arminianism has become without a doctrinal content. And so it denied all of the major doctrines and led to liberalism as we have it existing in this day. This now brings us to a consideration of the major parts or points of the controversy for Arminius himself and the major factor in the Arminian controversy with Arminius himself revolved around a conditional or unconditional predestination an irresistible or a resistible grace. To quote from William Cunningham, and if you did not purchase those volumes when they were available through reprint, you made a great mistake. And if you can find them, do so. His Historical Theology, Volume 2, William Cunningham, a great historian of the Church, a great Calvinist, relates... And this will help us to understand Arminius himself and his own position without the further perversions that were brought in by his followers who were known as the Remonstrants. Cunningham says, Arminius himself and the more evangelical of those who have generally been called after his name, professing to hold total depravity of man by nature, have asserted the necessity of the special supernatural agency of the Spirit to, pro to the production of faith and regeneration. Now, we can agree with that. And wholly to the grace of God and the operation of the Spirit. Now, this is what Arminius himself believed. This is why he would renounce Arminianism today. 
and be shamed of the fact that it's called by his name. He believed that if a man had faith that resulted from the supernatural regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know of any Arminian that believes that today. The only hang-up was he felt that man had enough power to resist the work of the Spirit in that supernatural work. And we'll see that this is the whole crux of the matter. So while they profess to be anxious only to show that as to the mode of the Spirit's operation, it is not irresistible. That was Arminius' main concern. That it was as absolutely necessary for the Spirit to regenerate a man in salvation as the Calvinists contended, but he did not believe that it was an irresistible work or an invincible work. And we picked up the irresistible from the Arminians and adopted their language. The discussions, however, which have taken place upon this subject, Cunningham goes on to say, have made it manifest that there are other deviations from sound doctrine on the subject of the work of the Spirit in producing faith and regeneration, into which Arminians are naturally, if not necessarily, led. And the subject is inseparably connected with right views of the entire depravity of man and of his inability in his natural state to will or to do anything spiritually good, subjects on the consideration of which I do not at present enter. Further following Cunningham, he says, Arminius, and this is very important, in his declaration addressed to the states of Holland in 1608, the year before his death, stated his views upon the subject in this way, quote, I ascribe to the grace, to grace the commencement, the continuance, and the consummation of all good. And to such an extent do I carry its influence, Arminius says, that a man, though already regenerate, can neither conceive, will, nor do any good at all, nor resist any temptation without this preventing and exciting, this following and cooperating grace. Strike out the word cooperating, and you could accept that statement without qualification. For that we also believe that even the regenerate cannot will to do good, apart from the grace of God. The only difference, Arminius held, that man could cooperate or refuse to cooperate. But let's continue with his statement. From this statement it will clearly appear that I am by no means injurious or unjust to grace by attributing, as it is reported of me, too much to man's free will. For the whole controversy reduces itself to the solution of this question. Is the grace of God a certain irresistible force? That is, the controversy does not relate to those actions or operations which must be ascribed to grace. For I acknowledge and inculcate as many of these actions and operations as any man ever did, but it relates solely to the mode of operation, whether it be irresistible or not, with respect to which I believe, according to the Scriptures, that many persons resist the Holy Spirit 
and reject the grace that is offered. That's the statement of Arminius. Arminius himself, as compared with his successors, seems to have held in the main, not consistently, but in the main, scriptural views of the depravity of human nature and the necessity, because of men's depravity, of a supernatural work of grace to affect their renovation and sanctification. And this is the chief point in which Arminianism, in its more evangelical form, differs from the more Pelagian representation of Christian doctrine which are often classed under the same designation. The difference is certainly not unimportant, and it ought to be admitted and recognized wherever it exists. But the history of this subject seems to show that whenever men abandon the principles of Calvinism, there is a powerful tendency leading them downwards into the depths of Pelagianism, which is an absolute denial of the total depravity of man and of the atoning work of Christ in its necessity to pay a sin debt as a substitutionary sacrifice. Arminius himself does not seem, so far as his views were ever fully developed, to have gone further in deviating from scriptural truth than to deny the Calvinistic doctrines of election, particular redemption, efficacious and irresistible grace in conversion, and to doubt, if not to deny, he never did deny, but doubt the perseverance of the saints. It is to be found in his followers, and particularly Episcopus and Cursilaeus, that they very soon introduced further corruption of scriptural truth, especially in regard to original sin, the work of the Spirit, and justification and made near approaches upon these and kindred subjects to Pelagian or Socinian views. And a large proportion of those theologians who have been willing to call themselves Arminians have manifested a similar leaning, have exhibited a similar result. Now we come secondly to a consideration of the followers of Arminius, those who corrupted his doctrine and brought us to the pitiable state where we now are in Christian circles. The consideration which we now must take under view is that of the remonstrance, and there are five points of remonstrance. A remonstrance is an opposition or an opposing view, a disagreement. Therefore, we first of all have the five points of Arminianism, out of which the five points of Calvinism developed at the Synod of Dort. Now, the remonstrants were the followers of Arminius, who carried his corruption of the gospel of grace to further extremes. Some of the leaders were Episcopus, who succeeded Arminius in the chair of theology at Leiden, Grotius, and Barnefelt. In 1610, according to P.J.S. de Klerk, 
in Confessions and Creed, out of the Encyclopedia of Christianity, Volume 3. In 1610, the Arminians, under the leadership of Johannes Utenbogart, that's U-Y-T-E-N-B-O-G-A-E-R-T, held a secret meeting at which a remonstrance was formulated. The remonstrance dealt with these five points of doctrine. Number one, the conditional decree of election. This is after the death of Arminius now. Number two, the universal merits of Christ. Number three, the free will of man. Number four, the resistibility of divine grace. Number five, the possibility of falling away from grace. Returning to Cunningham's history of theology, and his statement with reference to the remonstrance, he said it is quite common among the writers of the 17th century to distinguish between the original remonstrance, such as Arminius and those who adhered to his views, and who differed from the doctrines of the Reformed churches only in the five articles of the five points as they are commonly called, and those who deviated much further from scriptural truth, the latter class they were accustomed to call Pelagianizing or Socinianizing remonstrance. End of quote. Now, the remonstrance laid before the estates of Holland in 1610, their opposition to the Reformed faith as it related to predestination, the extent of the atonement, the nature of faith, the resistibility of grace, the perseverance of saints. It was first negative, wherein was rejected the five Calvinistic propositions, and then positive, wherein were asserted the five Arminian propositions. Now, this is important in the study, because now a system is being formulated around which the Synod of Dort is to meet and settle the issue as far as the church was concerned, but to bring the issue into divisive openness as far as history has been concerned. Therefore, I think that in spite of your weariness and possible drowsiness, it will be profitable as far as you're able to pay attention to a study of this nature, to look first of all at what the remonstrance rejected, so that we might better understand their five positive articles that were presented for adoption to the states of Holland that resulted in the beautiful articles of the Synod of Dort, which if you do not have a copy, you must make sure that you obtain one, and I will tell you later how this can be done. They rejected these five following points of faith of Calvinism. Number one, that God has before the fall and even before the creation of man, by an unchangeable decree, foreordained some to eternal life and others to eternal damnation, without any regard to righteousness or sin and to obedience or disobedience and simply because it so pleased him in order to show the glory of his righteousness to the one class 
and his mercy to the other. Second, they rejected that God, in view of the fall, and in just condemnation of our first parents, and their posterity ordained to exempt a part of mankind from the consequences of the fall, and to save them by his free grace, but to leave the rest without regard to age or moral condition to their condemnation for the glory of his righteousness. Number three, they rejected that the Holy Spirit works in the elect by irresistible grace, so that they must be converted and be saved. While the grace necessary and sufficient for conversion, faith, and salvation is withheld from the rest. Although they are extremely called externally and invited by the revealed will of God. Number five, the remonstrance rejected that those who have received this irresistible grace can never totally and finally lose it, but are guided and preserved by the same grace to the end. So now that which had started out as a seed in Arminius is formulated into a negative system. As a positive system, they drew up the five articles of the remonstrancy known as the five points of Arminianism. To be uh, adopted and accepted by the states generals of Holland. Number one, conditional predestination. God has immutably decreed from eternity to save those men who, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, believe in Jesus Christ and by the same grace persevere in the obedience of faith to the end, and on the other hand to condemn the unbelievers and unconverted. Now just a slight reading of that statement sounds in place. But you will see that the predestination is put into the person of Christ, and election is of Christ and not of men, but only of men as they come into Christ. And this is the hidden fish hook within the bait. Therefore, in this statement, election and condemnation are thus conditioned by foreknowledge and made dependent on the foreseen faith or unbelief of men. So you see, we must be careful even how we state, how we state the decrees of God. Or we might find that the remonstrants were sounder than we are in their statements. We have to be very careful. This is why you must study history in order to minister the things of God to the people of God. Number two, universal atonement. And they said, this is their article, Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man, and his grace is extended to all. I know a lot of four-point Calvinists who believe that, don't you? His atoning sacrifice is in and of itself sufficient for the redemption of the whole world, and is intended for all by God the Father. But its inherent sufficiency does not necessarily imply its actual efficiency. The grace of God may be resisted, and only those who accept it by faith are actually saved. He who is lost is lost by his own guilt. Now, with reference to that statement, you see the Arminians agree with the Orthodox, the Calvinist, 
in holding the doctrine of a vicarious or expiatory atonement in opposition to the Socinians. But they soften it down and represent its direct effect to be to enable God consistently with his justice and veracity to enter into a new covenant with men under which pardon is conveyed to all men on condition of repentance and faith, actually making man's cooperation with God that which makes the atonement effectual unto salvation. The immediate effect of Christ's death was not the salvation, but only the savability of sinners by the removal of legal obstacles and opening the door for pardon and reconciliation. They reject the doctrine of a limited atonement, which is connected with a supralapsarian view of predestination, but is disowned by moderate Calvinists who differ from the Armenians in all other points. Unless some of you throw up your hands in fear in the event that you do not go to my full consistency, and that is to the supralapsarian position, let me here interject and state that almost without exception, the members who made up the Synod of Dort were infralapsarian and some even sub-Lapsarian who rejected the Arminian position of the atonement. So you see, even if you are infra- or sub-Lapsarian, you cannot consistently as a Calvinist hold to this view of the atonement. Now listen to this. The third positive article of faith, saving faith, man in his fallen state is unable to accomplish anything really and truly good, and therefore also unable to attain to saving faith, unless he be regenerated and renewed by God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And every five-point Calvinist can say a hearty amen to that point of the remonstrance. Now, you see, the Arminians don't even accept that today. They don't believe that faith comes as a result of regeneration, but regeneration, a la Billy Graham, <laughs> comes as a result of faith. But not even the remonstrance, not even Episcopus and his disciples would have ever dared propose that a dead sinner could believe apart from the regenerating influence of the Holy Spirit. The only point they disagree is in the next point, which is resistible grace. That that grace which quickens the dead sinner and enables faith can be resisted by the dead sinner. How they get, got that inconsistency is beyond me. But resistible grace. They say grace. Now get this. Why? Well, you know, I could have fellowship with some, some of the Armenians if they'd come back around to this position. <laughs> but listen to this. Grace is the beginning, continuation, and end of our spiritual life, so that man can neither think nor do any good or resist sin without prevening, cooperating, and assisting grace. Leave out the word cooperating, and you can accept that statement. But as for the manner of cooperation, you see where it all hinges? This grace is not irresistible. So again, they have gotten man-centered, putting the whole 
ball of wax into the cooperation of the sinner with God. And then finally, by the time of the death of Arminius and the remonstrance drawing up their five points, perseverance had been totally which we cannot ascribe to. Now this brings us to the Synod of Dort, because it was the formulation of these points by the Arminians that eventually, with the influence from James I of England, who is responsible for the translation of the King James Version of the Bible, to settle the strife in Holland that the National Synod of Dort was called. It has received its name, the Synod of Dort, because it met at the city of Dortrecht, which was an old fortified town in which the independence of the United Provinces was declared in the year 1572, and was convened by the States General, November the 13th, 1618, and lasted through May the 9th of 1619 with over 150 sessions at which time it was not only a matter to settle the Armenian controversy, but to settle the issue of foreign missions, to draw up a plan for a better translation of the scriptures into the Dutch language out of the Hebrew and the Greek, and many other matters. The Synod consisted of 84 members and 18 secular commissioners. 58 were Dutchmen and the rest were foreigners, coming from England and other parts of Europe, the France being denied, although they had delegates by the government uh, to attend. It was an open meeting, and such great Puritan scholars as Ames appeared and observed and wrote concerning the scholarly outcome of the Synod of Dort, whereas the Puritan Perkins in England was one of the major targets of the writings of James Arminius. It was composed of some of the most outstanding scholars throughout several parts of the world and was open to others and others than the delegates themselves. I have here a book entitled Crisis in the Reformed Churches. I'm sorry to say that in spite of the many sources that I've drawn from and I've tried to mention some that you might make reference. This book came into my hands only last Saturday, and my notes were already completed, and I could not work the very valuable information into the lecture. But I believe this book is available and on sale. It's edited by the Young Crisis in the Reformed Church. In the back, you are given the articles of the Remonstrance, as well as the articles of the Synod of Dort, as well as their uh, renunciation of the errors which is worth the price of the book alone. But I want to read to you a statement on page 17 describing the Synod itself. It's, it was undoubtedly an imposing assembly. And this is, this is a quote in the book from one not too friendly toward Calvinists. But listen to what he says, And for learning and piety as respectable as any ever held since the days of the Apostles. Bridinger, a great light of the Swiss churches, was astonished at the amount of knowledge and talent displayed by the Dutch delegates, and says that if ever the Holy Spirit were present in a council, he was present at Dort. 
Scotus of the Palatinate thanked God that he was a member of that synod and placed it, placed it high above similar assemblies. Meyer, a delegate of Basel, whenever afterwards he spoke of this synod, uncovered his head and exclaimed that it was a most holy synod. A liberal Catholic historian, Paola Sarpi, in a letter to Heinsius, spoke very highly of it, and so on it goes. So even those who were outside observers could not speak too highly of the solemnity and the holy attitude of the men that attended. John Borgerman, pastor at Lourdes, was elected as its president. The five articles of the remonstrance were unanimously rejected, and five Calvinistic canons adopted, together with the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. And these five canons, rearranged from the regular order as they are presented in the canons of Dort, now give us the source of what has become popularly known as the five points of Calvinism. As a Calvinist, don't go out and display ignorance by saying that Calvin drew up five points and put them into his writings, and these are the five points of Calvinism. Now, Calvin taught the total sovereignty of God over total life, and these teachings soteriologically can be drawn out of Calvin. But they were systematized in the five canons of Dort. Now, according to an article on page 59 and 60 of the book Crisis in the Reformed Church, let me share these words with you, because actually to put the canons of Dort into the order which we're most familiar with, beginning with total depravity, going through Tulip, you put uh, articles 3 and 4 together and at the head, and then drop the others down under, because first of all is treated predestination and then total depravity. And uh, we start with total depravity because an understanding of man's nature makes it more easily uh, to accept the doctrine of predestination. But they were answering that point in which Arminius had attacked the faith, which was predestination, realized that you could not set forth effectively the doctrine of predestination without the total depravity of man. And so it came in Articles 3 and 4, and so we get the order we use today in the form of the tulip. Now again, don't go out and say that T-U-L-I-P, the tulip, was chosen to demonstrate <laughs> the five points of Calvinism because the Synod of Dort met in Holland and the tulip is the uh, national flower of Holland because you just don't spell tulip, T-U-L-I-P, in Dutch. <laughs> That's an Americanizing of it. So let's be as, as open and as, as knowledgeable as we can in these things so that our enemies won't have any more than they now have to rant and rave against us. But anyway, this article, article number four, The Doctrinal Deliverances of Dort by Fred Kluster, says the Arminian attack upon the Reformed doctrines began with the doctrine of predestination and continued to center upon this doctrine. 
Thus, the Arminian articles began with the doctrine of predestination, and this has also determined the order of the canons of Dort. This is unfortunate and has too often led superficial readers or commentators to suggest that election or predestination is the central principle of Calvinism from which everything else is deduced. Nothing is further from the truth, and a responsible reading of the canons will readily show the falsity of this interpretation. Election is no more the central or primary doctrine of the canons than it is of Calvin himself. Since the doctrine of election received the brunt of the Arminian opposition, not to mention calumny or the slanders in caricature, the canons of Dort first deal with this subject. However, the first head of doctrine begins with reference to man as fallen into sin and then goes on to speak of the preaching of the gospel by which faith is awakened. Only then in the sixth article of the first head does election receive its explanation. It would probably have been better if the canons had begun with what are now the third and fourth heads of doctrine. They are the historical order of creation, fall, and redemption, which is basic to the entire doctrine of the canons is explicated in further detail. And with that, I wholly concur. But staying with the order, I will only very rapidly sum up the five canons of Dort, for these are available in any of the standards dealing with the creeds that you might read for yourself. But you should read them, and you should study them, and you should expound them, and then you will learn what true Calvinism is. They first of all bring point one, or head one, divine predestination, and under that several subheadings. And it starts summing up, since all men sinned in Adam and lie under the curse, God would have done no injustice if he had left them to their merited punishment. But in his infinite mercy he provided a salvation through the gospel of Christ, that those who believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. And then they come to election. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, he has out of his mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race, which has fallen through their own fault, from their primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, which he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect, and the foundation of salvation, and so on. Then election is absolute and unconditional. It is not founded on foreseen faith and holiness. Secondly, they come to a discussion of the death of Christ or limited atonement. And this is very important, and I think I shall read this summation of this article that you might underline in your thinking the difference between what Arminius said and what we Calvinists say, because uh, there is a similarity of language. According to the sovereign counsel of God, the saving efficacy of the atoning death of Christ extends to all the elect and to them only, so as to bring them infallibly to salvation. Now watch this. But intrinsically... The sacrifice and satisfaction of Christ is of infinite worth and value. 
abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. This death derives its infinite value and dignity from these considerations. Because the person who submitted to it was not only really man and perfectly holy, but also the only begotten Son of God, of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and Holy Spirit, which qualifications were necessary to constitute him a Savior for us, because it was attended with a sense of the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. Moreover, the promise of the gospel is that Whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and all persons promiscuously and without distinction, to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. Now, you see, we are not talking about a defect of sufficiency in the merit of what the Son of God could do. Anything the Son of God does is of infinite value. So the Arminian says that it had an infinite value so that it removed all obstacles not to save anybody but to render persons savable and cannot save until it is cooperated with by man. Now they come in sections 3 and 4 to deal first with the corruption of man and secondly his conversion to God. And here is a full treatment of the total depravity of God, of man, and of his full corruption and the absolute need of the intervening work of God the Holy Spirit to bring him to life, to faith, and to repentance. By the time of the canons of Dort, it was necessary to make a clear-cut statement on the fifth point, which is the perseverance of the saints. And it says, whom God calls according to his purpose, to the communion of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerates by the Holy Spirit, he delivers also from the dominion and slavery of sin in this life, though not altogether from the body of sin and from the infirmities of the flesh, so long as they continue in this work. Now, to conserve time... I'm going to leave the full reading of the Canons of Dort to you and encourage you to a close study and scrutiny of the statements. Now, we may note, however, before leaving Dort, that in opposition to the Canons of Dort that refuted Arminianism and expelled the Arminians from Holland only for them to return after the death of Prince Maurice of Orange, Episcopus prepared a lengthy defense of the Arminian Articles and a Confession of Faith in Dutch in 1621 and in Latin in 1622. Any slight examination of these articles will reveal that the one is totally man-centered and the other God-centered. And this brings me to my final point, and that is Wesleyan or Evangelical Arminianism. And since there is available material on this subject, I hope to give only a broad coverage of Wesleyan Arminianism as it was primarily known under John Wesley and then the scholarly theologians that followed him. And we must not speak down their scholarship. Now, we can speak down the scholarship 
of these jellyfish, green, knucklehead ignoramuses that call themselves Arminians today who claim to preach because they don't know doctrine from a bull in a barnyard. And it's too, too sad that such ignorance is overwhelming us in this day. If they would study some doctrine, they would be able at least to preach some gospel. And this, this would eliminate the necessity of all of this entertainment and uh, hamburgers and hot dogs to get people into a religious mood. All right. Wesleyan Arminianism is traced to John and Charles Wesley, who, of course, as you know, opposed George Whitfield, who was a Calvinistic Methodist, and which led to Arminianism as it has degenerated into what we know today. Now, the first point in Wesleyan Arminianism is that it violently rejected the doctrine of predestination. Jacob Arminius did this somewhat in a scholastic way, as a professor of theology. But by the time we come to the Wesleys, it is a violent rejection. John Wesley declared, quote, The elect are all those who suffer or permit or allow Christ to make them alive. John Wesley, all our Billy Graham. You see, Billy Graham is not anywhere kin to a Baptist except in his immersion and his security of the believer. If he holds to that, I don't know. There's his, there, there is his hour of decision. Will you suffer Christ to make you alive? That's John Wesley. Now, persons have said, and I hope to puncture your balloon at this point, but persons have said, well, you know, Charles Wesley never did renounce Calvinism. And his beautiful hymn revealed that he never went as far as his brother John. Well, now, Charles was a little more retiring than John. And he was a poet, and far more than John, and also lived in a world of fiction, probably more than John. But lest you think that Charles Wesley had any sympathy whatsoever with the doctrines of Calvinism, and this certainly uh, does not measure up to some of his beautiful hymns that we do sing, let me give you a quote of two poems. One on the decrees of God. He wrote, quote, O horrible decree, worthy of whence it came, forgive their hellish blasphemy who charge it on the land. To limit thee they dare, blaspheme thee to thy face, deny their fellow worms a share in thy redeeming grace. Does that sound Calvinistic? On predestination, Charles Wesley wrote, Increase, if that can be, the perfect hate I feel to Satan's horrible decree, that genuine child of hell, which feigns to pass by the most of Adam's race and leave them in their blood to die, shut out from saving grace. Does that ring with love for predestination? Not even Arminius would have used such language. Now, the original doctrine of Methodism was formulated primarily from the 80-plus volumes of published sermons and works by Wesley, by the Wesleyan theologians such as Fletcher, Fisk, 
and especially Watson, who are representative of the movement. And here is the sum and substance. Number one, the universality of divine grace. First of all, you must hate predestination. You don't even allow that in the discussion. Now here's the positive doctrine, the universality of divine grace. Not only in its intention, but in its actual offer. No less a person than Philip Schaff said with respect to the Wesleyan doctrine of universality of grace that it resembles the Quaker's doctrine of universal light, which removed the necessity of the Holy Scripture in the illumination of the mind in salvation. Now, it is assumed under this scheme of the universality of divine grace that all men are born not in sin, but in an order of sin, and also not in grace, but in an order of saving grace. Therefore, according to Wesley, Adam brought a universal seed of death into the human race, but Christ brought a universal seed of life, which is available for all who do not reject it. Now, he goes on further to point out that by virtue of a universal atonement, this is why the universal atonement is so necessary to the Wesleyan-Arminian scheme, <clears throat> man, though born in sin, is held guiltless until he arrives at the point of personal responsibility. I hope that you have noted that up to this time, from 1560, traveling through history, we have not one time come up in the, in the discussions and debates of the Arminians against the Calvinists a question of an age of accountability. Now with the Wesleys, it's brought into the church that every man, though born in sin, is without guilt until he arrives at the point of personal responsibility. Now, at least they're consistent because watch where they continue to go. For the Wesleyan theologians continue to point out in their writings that all men are actually saved if they do not incur the guilt of rejecting salvation by unbelief. That the only sin which can condemn a man is unbelief. I'll tell you, according to that doctrine, as I've said before, and I'll say again, the greatest mercy we could do is not through euthanasia kill old folks and cripples, but not babies in the head as soon as they're born. Then you'd get every one of them into heaven, because they never could reach that point, quote, of personal responsibility to have the sin of unbelief. And the worst thing in the world you're doing is preaching so that they have that opportunity to reject the gospel. And the sooner we close down the mission work, the better, because you're sending men to hell with a sin of unbelief. Now, he goes on to point out, listen how strong, this is, he, he, he pulls no punches. He says that all children, going back to John Wesley, right through these theologians, that all children are saved if they die before the committing of actual sin. Why? Because of the universal atonement. Though born in sin, they're not held guilty before the age, quote, of responsibility agency. Responsibility agency. 
on the same ground. Now stay with me, because this is where we've come. On the same ground, Wesleyan theologians have taught and do teach when they have any doctrinal content that all heathen may be saved who do not neglect their opportunities. For heaven's sake, why did he ever come to the colonies of America? Why did he preach in the open field? Why not encourage paganism and let us die in our heathenism? and be guaranteed of salvation because even after you've believed in Christ according to the Wesleyan position, then you are liable to lose the whole uh, kit and caboodle and go to hell after all. All right, let me give you a direct quote. He said, Ability and opportunity are the measure of responsibility. And God requires no more from a man than he can perform. Christ's Atonement covers the deficiency of ability in the case of infants and the heathen, and the deficiency of opportunity in the case of the heathen. You get that? Universal atonement covers the deficiency of ability in infants and the deficiency of opportunity in the case of the heathen. Leave the heathen in heathenism, I say, if that be true. And then... Another major doctrine of Wesleyan, Wesleyan Arminianism is the doctrine of the witness of the Spirit, or the assurance of salvation. At this particular point in the original delivery of this paper, to the ministers' conference composed of ministers from the western part of Georgia and the eastern part of Alabama, there was a mechanical failure so that none of the tape recorders that were being used at that time were able to get a complete recording of the message on the Armenian controversy. However, in view of the fact that I used full notes, and for the benefit of you who have persevered in your listening to this historical paper of the Armenian controversy to this point, and who desire the remaining information of the paper, which was only for a few minutes more. I am at this point dubbing in from my notes that which was said originally to the minister's fellowship. I had just said the next major doctrine of Wesleyan Arminianism is the doctrine of the witness of the Spirit or the assurance of salvation. This is based upon the believer feeling assured of his present acceptance with God. And they claim at the same time that he is guarded against a carnal security by the fear of a total and final fall from grace. This Methodist doctrine of the assurance of salvation differs from the Calvinistic doctrine of assurance and perseverance, which is based not on the subjective feeling of the believer, but rather is rooted and grounded in the divine promises and the unchangeable decrees of God's election. Therefore, for the Calvinist, Assurance is objectively rooted out there in the Word of God and the promises God has made through that Word 
with the witness of the Spirit of God to those promises to his heart, rather than upon the subjective feeling of the individual resulting from his experience. The next major doctrine of Wesleyan Arminianism is the doctrine of perfectionism. We are told by Philip Schaff in his Creeds of Christendom that the Quakers, who place so much emphasis upon an inward experience and inner life rather than upon the authority of the external revelation of the Word of God, that the Quakers preceded the Wesleyans in this doctrine also. Now, Wesleyan-Arminian perfectionism is not sinless perfectionism or faultlessness. This John Wesley denied as well as those who followed him. But the Wesleyan Arminianism is a sort of imperfect perfectionism, from which it is possible to fall again temporarily or forever. This may be checked out in his Sermons on Temptation, Volume 2, page 215, and his Sermons on Perfectionism, Volume 1, page 356 and volume 2, page 168. This perfectionism of Wesleyan-Arminianism is called entire sanctification, in which state it is believed that all voluntary transgressions or sinful volitions are excluded. In other words, that a believer can come to the place in his Christian experience that he no longer willfully and voluntarily sins against God, but that all willful and voluntary transgressions are excluded. Although, however, involuntary infirmities may be and do remain because of the corruption of man's nature. According to the prevailing view, that is the original Wesleyan view and that which has dominated Wesleyan Arminianism, the attainment of this entire sanctification or imperfect perfectionism was a gradual growth in grace. But according to others who have just been just as outspoken in their views, it is by a special act of faith. That is, it comes as a second work through a special act of faith rather than that which is progressively and gradually grown into. Furthermore, according to this view, salvation, rather than being the direct and immediate work of God the Holy Spirit in the regeneration of the sinner, bringing that sinner to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance on the account of sin, is the result of moral suasion or the arguments of the minister of the gospel that results in a decision of the will to allow the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. I think you may see from this concept of perfectionism 
an element of that which has developed in our own time called the higher life or the deeper life doctrine. I can never keep up with this particular movement because I never know in what direction they're going, whether into the higher life or the deeper life. This has been popularized by such writers as Ruth Paxson and the Keswick Bible Conference movement, which holds to a form of Wesleyan perfectionism that a person can come to the place in his Christian experience that he no longer consciously and willfully and voluntarily sins against God. The argument used is something of the nature that if you can abstain from sinning for one second, then for two, then if you can abstain that long for a minute, if for one minute, then for five minutes, if for five minutes, then an hour, if for an hour, then a day, and so on, until you have been brought to the abstinence of sin and, and perfectionism. Also, we may see that most Arminianism, though inconsistent as a system, inconsistent with itself, nevertheless, as we know it today in fundamental circles, even in Baptist fundamentalist circles, with the exception of the security of the believer, is Wesleyan Methodism. Therefore, we have now come full circle, not only from Arminius to the settling of the controversy with a denunciation of the Arminian errors at the Synod of Dort, but now full circle back to an Arminianism that outdoes Arminius himself. Therefore, I hope that this somewhat detailed and I know somewhat difficult lecture to listen to has been of some profit and will be of profit to you that have persevered with me herein. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.